0: What did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus actually achieve during his life on earth? Was Jesus a success or was he a failure? Was he a real savior or was he just another imposter, one of many? How did Jesus impact people, the people's lives in history when he lived? How can he impact people's lives today? How does he impact people's lives today? Can he impact people's lives today? What is the mission? What is the purpose of the church? What is the nature of true freedom? I believe the answers to all these questions and many more can be found in these few verses which Jesus read, quoting from the book of Isaiah, in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. Let's set the scene. So Jesus has been, has been baptized um, in Luke which chapter, is it? So someone find it? Luke 2, that's it. Jesus has been baptized. The Holy Spirit has descended on him like a dove. And Jesus has gone out into the wilderness and he's been tempted by the devil. And he's overcome those temptations. He hasn't succumbed to them. And now, when we pick up the story, he comes into Galilee in the power of the Spirit, preaching in the synagogues. So look at chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread over the whole countryside. One Sabbath, Jesus, as was his custom, as was his practice, went into, into the synagogue in Nazareth, in his hometown, and um, he went there to attend the meeting of God's people. And just as, as an aside, if, for the Lord Jesus to make a practice of meeting with God's people on the Sabbath, um, it's a real example to us, isn't it, as Christian people? It should be our regular practice. It should be our custom, something that we do gladly, to come together with God's people. So it was certainly Jesus' practice. And at one point in the service, Jesus gets up to read. Now, in a synagogue in, in the time, at the time of Jesus, the usual order of service went like this. So that they'd have an opening prayer and some praise, then a reading from the law, the Pentateuch, then perhaps a reading from the prophets, and then a short sermon, and sometimes the sermon was given by a learned visitor. So, you know, some, some um, um, important visitor in the area, some learned rabbi would be invited to bring the sermon that day in the synagogue. I think Jesus was considered such a visitor. We know from verses 14 and 15, don't we, that his, his reputation was, was growing. And um, it says in verse 15 everybody praised him, he was popular. And people were excited about Jesus and flocked from all over the place to come and see him and hear him preach. And I think the people of Nazareth would have been very proud, actually, of Jesus' reputation. And uh, I think they would have felt honoured that a kind of home, hometown hero had come back to preach in his own backyard, in his own synagogue. And you can imagine the synagogue would have been absolutely packed out with people waiting to hear Jesus says, doesn't it, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Jesus reads this passage, which we read in verses 18 to 19 from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. We don't know whether Jesus chose this passage or whether they had a regular um, system where they just read through the scripture verse by verse. But in any case, this was the passage that he chose or which fell to him on that day to read (coughs) You read. I really advise you to read Isaiah 61. It's a very, very long and interesting chapter, which talks about the Messiah and God's restoration and God's blessing of His people. But Jesus only quotes a small portion of it. He doesn't read the whole chapter. Now, if you look at these verses, Jesus speaks about a certain. Um, Jesus, the, the prophet Isaiah, speaks of a certain person. Let me read those verses again. The spirit of the Lord is on me, says this person, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So what do we know about this person of whom Isaiah speaks? Well, we know the spirit of the Lord is on him. The spirit of the Lord has anointed him and given him the power that he needs to perform his ministry. And the Holy Spirit has come on him to commission him, to give him the divinely sanctioned authority to preach the word and to do these wonderful things. So this person that Isaiah speaks of has the authority and the power to perform this, this wonderful ministry. And we know that this man will, this person will come and he will do things to help various needy And oppressed and suffering people in the world. The oppressed, the poor, prisoners, the blind. And also to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, or as the, the King James says, the acceptable year of the Lord. Now the Jews would have clearly understood this to be a prophecy of the Messiah this anointed and appointed servant of the Lord who was to come at the right time to deliver his people, to deliver them from their enemies, to bring about an unprecedented time of restoration and blessing. And this was the Messiah the Jews were waiting for and longing for for all those centuries. They said, how long, O Lord, till this person comes and delivers us? They were a sort of beleaguered people, an oppressed people, strangers in their own land, Now look at the verse here, verse 20. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. In those days, a preacher would stand up to read the scripture and sit down to teach. I think some some mega churches do that today. You've got a trendy young pastor sitting there on the stool talking to people, drinking coffee. But Jesus sat down to teach. It says here, the eyes of everybody were fixed on him. You could have heard a pin drop. People are wondering what he's going to say. And then Jesus begins his sermon. He begins his exposition of these verses with the boldest opening line I've ever, you could ever imagine in a sermon. So every preacher tries to, I think most preachers do, try to think of a good opening line or a good introduction. But Jesus gets straight to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? What does he say? Look at verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Think about John the Baptist, that godly and blessed man. He came and he preached, didn't he? But he didn't preach himself. He was a signpost. He said, look, look, I'm not the Messiah. People asked him to his face. He said, I'm not the Messiah. The one coming after me, he is the Messiah. And I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals never pointed to himself he just pointed to Jesus time and time again I'm not the one to come I'm not the Messiah you know there were some some qualities some attributes of John might have confused people think well this this man's unusual perhaps he's the one that that was sent to us by the Lord but no he was not the one but Jesus is entirely different isn't he when Jesus stands up to speak he makes it very clear that he regards himself as being the fulfillment of this prophecy he makes it very clear by the things he says and does that he regards himself as the Messiah. He couldn't be more direct, could he? He so says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So think about this. After centuries of spiritual darkness, foreign oppression, many of the, the curses that Isaiah talked about, you know, you read Isaiah, we've heard about the, the, the punishments and the, the judgments poured upon Israel for their disobedience. And Israel was, express, was, was experiencing those things at the time. But after all these years of waiting and waiting and waiting, God has remembered his people. God has sent his blessed servant, divinely appointed and anointed by the Holy Spirit, to save them. And they, those people in that synagogue in Nazareth 2,000 years ago were witnesses of this. Can you imagine how extraordinary that was to hear that claim? Now, of course, any Tom, Dick, and Harry could stand up and claim to be a messiah, couldn't they? There were false messiahs. And there's still a false messiah's today. Jesus could have been one of those, but he backs backs it up. He backs up his claims with hard evidence. Think about John the Baptist again. When John the Baptist was in prison, he went through a little bit of a crisis of faith, as it appears to us, and he started to doubt this Jesus of whom I spoke. Was he really the Messiah? What am I doing in prison? He sent some of his, his disciples to Jesus. He says, Are you the one who was to come? Are you the Messiah, or should we expect someone else? What does Jesus point to as evidence of his mess- Messiahship? He says, This, Luke 7 Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor those that, that verse is very reminiscent isn't it of this Luke 4 this Isaiah quotation all the all the miraculous and wonderful things Jesus were doing were things that the Messiah was expected to do it was, that he was prophesied to do that only he could do because only a man anointed by the Holy Spirit and empowered could do these wonderful things and these these um, the things that Jesus did were were powerful demonstrations and and pieces of evidence of his unique divine anointing and messianic credentials, and these were meant to lead the people to faith in him and say, Yes, this is our Messiah, because he ticks all the boxes. In a sense, I, I almost imagine the people could have had a checklist of all the attributes of the Messiah because they, they, they had the, the Old Testament, they had the scriptures, and they knew the scriptures probably better than we know our scriptures. And they could have gone through the list and ticked off the things one, one after the other. Yes, Jesus has done this, he's done this, he's doing this. This must be our Messiah. That was the only conclusion they could have come to. They should have welcomed him. But the tragic thing is, brothers and sisters, we know, don't we, that many of the Jews, despite the evidence, despite the fulfilment of this prophecy, they still rejected Jesus. And you think, why was this? Why did they reject him? One reason the Jews rejected Jesus, well, they, they were hard-hearted and stubborn. One reason they rejected him, I believe, was because they, they had a very misguided idea what the Messiah was to be, and what he was to do. It's possible to read verses like this, isn't it, to, to conclude that the main purpose of the Messiah's mission was to overcome all the social ills of his day, that he was on this kind of crusade to eliminate poverty, combat oppression, and oppose the forces of tyranny that blighted the land, and freeing the Jews and establishing then and there an earthly kingdom of peace and prosperity in the land of Israel. You could read this and think this Jesus this Messiah is going to come and destroy our enemies and free, free the land and bring about universal peace and prosperity right now in our lifetime. Many of the Jews were expecting such a messiah. That's the kind of messiah they would have wanted and would have followed. Their minds were drawn to the natural and physical things, rather than the spiritual things of God. They expected an everything-now kingdom, the blessings spoken by Isaiah, spoken of by Isaiah, fully realised in their lifetime. When the Jews of Jesus, (coughs) excuse me, love to get rid of this cough. When the Jews of Jesus Day envisaged their Messiah, they would have imagined him as as a kind of military leader or a political leader, to free the country from their enemies. But Think about this, friends. Jesus did not concern himself with changing society on a a global, political level. Not global level, political, national level. Jesus didn't go around stirring up an uprising against the Romans, did he? Many would have wanted him to, but he didn't. Jesus did not go to to angry men and say, let's go and storm the prisons and free all the prisoners the Romans have imprisoned unjustly. And Jesus' ministry seemed, seemed anything but glorious and victorious, didn't it? When he hung on that cross, that Roman cross, the most shameful death, reserved for the lowest criminals and scum of the earth. He hung on that cross, didn't look glorious. He was, he was no man's idea of what a Messiah should be, according to the Jewish conventional wisdom. Where was the deliverance they were promised? Where was the freedom for the prisoners? Where was the year of the Lord's favour? He completely misunderstood what this, what this was to look like in God's sovereign plan. But I want to show you this morning, briefly, hopefully, that Jesus did, did actually fulfil all the prophecies of Isaiah. But not in the way the Jews expected. And he did. He ticked every single box. We can say with confidence, this is our Messiah. This is our Saviour. So how did Jesus do this? Well, let me give you some ideas. First of all, Jesus changed the circumstances of people. I don't want us to, to forget this. Jesus did actually have a ministry of compassion and kindness amongst the Jewish people, amongst suffering people. If we look at this list here of things the Messiah was to do, Jesus actually did do these things, didn't he? He did preach the good news to the poor. Preaching was a major component of his ministry. In one place, Jesus was asked, where where are you? Because he was out praying half the night. And Jesus said, we must go to another village, to other villages to preach the gospel, for that is why I was sent. He was preaching. I would say the backbone of his ministry was a word ministry. Preaching the gospel, preaching the good news to the poor, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So I don't want us to to have this idea that Jesus somehow was just a miracle worker and a kind of, you know, physician going around healing people. That was part of his ministry, but he was a preacher and a teacher and the word was important. And Jesus did go around, didn't he? He did good good to people. He, He opened the eyes of the blind. We read many times that he did that in the the Bible. He opened the eyes of blind people and gave them back their sight. But I want you to notice as well that Jesus' ministry, as I said, was not done on a national level or political level. His ministry was very much focused on individuals, locally, going around, quietly and humbly healing people and doing good, showing acts of mercy and kindness. So whilst the Jews might have expected a national Messiah to come and usher in this kingdom, imminently Jesus wasn't doing that he was quietly going around not drawing attention to himself but doing the work of kindness and mercy and we we see Jesus is a very compassionate Messiah he's got great compassion and concern for those who suffer and he does alleviate their suffering and deliver them he's full of mercy for the broken man or woman and I don't want to to lose that and kind of over spiritualise it he was concerned about people what about releasing the oppressed? Well, we know Jesus didn't do that on a national scale. He didn't overthrow the Romans. But he did overthrow the, he did overthrow the demons, the evil spirits that were oppressing people. To so those imprisoned by the effects of sin. If, you, if you've been imprisoned by sin, you know exactly what it's like. It takes over your life, imprisons you, ruins you. To people like that, Jesus went around, he offered forgiveness, he offered spiritual healing. So in that sense, he did fulfill the prophecy. He went around delivering people from, who were oppressed by illnesses and sicknesses and afflictions, quietly, locally, but he did it. And all those individuals had their lives changed for the better, having met with Jesus. And all these were tick box column things to say, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for can bring healing to the people. So in many cases, Jesus did change the circumstances of people, but not everybody, not all the Jews who are suffering. We see see, the, the pool of Siloam where Jesus heals that one man, but the others are not healed. But he does change the lives of certain individuals. Changes their circumstances. The second way that Jesus changed people and delivered people and fulfilled these promises is a bit more subtle. I'm going to try and explain explain this to you as best I can. Jesus changed their perspective on their lives. This is a bit bit less obvious and um, I think the Jews would have missed this and I think if we're not careful, we can miss this as well. I want to pose to you a question, brothers and sisters. Is it possible... For a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a Christian person, to be set free from difficult circumstances without those circumstances actually being changed? Let me read that again. Is it possible for a believer in the Lord Jesus to be set free from difficult circumstances without those circumstances actually being changed, being taken away? Amen. It is, isn't it? But not everybody realises that because some people believe that unless you're actually delivered... From the circumstances you're facing, the difficulties, you cannot possibly be free. And I want to prove to you today, well, this is my my theory anyway, but I believe it's biblical, that Jesus sets people free in all sorts of ways. He did it then and he does it now. Let me explain. So many people, as I said, at the time of Jesus would have expected Jesus to, to be a political leader, and to live, deliver, deliver the whole nation from material poverty and usher in this prosperity, this golden age, this year of jubilee, which I'll talk about a bit later. And they would say, well, if he hasn't done this, he's failed us. He's not, he's not a true messiah because he hasn't done this. He doesn't meet the expectations that we have. But I want to say to you that Jesus was doing a far greater work of liberation in the hearts of people. It was largely unseen, but to the people that he affected, it was profound. It was life-changing. Think about this. There are two ways. There are two ways to, 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 to save a person from poverty. There may be more ways, but I can think of two ways. Think about a person who's really struggling materially, doesn't have enough food on the table. What can you do to help such a person? One is to give him a load of money, write a cheque. Do people still write checks? I still write checks, I'm a bit, bit of a dinosaur, but give him a massive wad of cash. Christmas bonus. He's got plenty of money, all of a sudden he can buy whatever he wants. Want a million pounds? Here's a million pounds, I'll write you the cheque. That person can go away, he can live a more comfortable life. He's been delivered in an instant by someone's generosity from his poverty. Problem is, there's no guarantee, is there, that person won't be poor again. What if he, as so often happens, squanders his money? What if he falls on hard times? No. Having spent some time in Ukraine, Ukrainians often, when I was there, were very cash poor. They didn't have much money around. Some of them did. They lived in these big mansions, oligarchs, but some of them were very poor. And they were only kind of one family illness away from poverty and destitution. They had to survive. A person that you give money to, he might have all this money and he might become rich. But as I said, there's no guarantee that he'll be rich tomorrow. None of us can predict, can we? We can't put our trust in riches, which are so uncertain, the Bible says. And you can imagine such a person living in slavery, couldn't you? To their, to their fear of being poor again. If you talk to someone who's, who's become wealthy having been poor, they might say something like this, you know, I know what it's like to be miserable, to be poor, and I never want to go back to that again. Now, that's, that's a normal human reaction, isn't it? Poverty causes great suffering. But that person who's been delivered, who's been given this cash bonus by the generosity of somebody else, and benefactor, his happiness, his sense of well-being, what does it depend on? Only the continuation of his improved circumstances. If those circumstances change, if he loses all his money, he goes back to being poor again, he goes back to where he was before. And he's always living in fear, this kind of slavery, this oppression of knowing that one day he can, can all be taken away. You know, a sick person who's made well, you know, you're cured of cancer. Well, that's, that's great and wonderful if you're, if you're cured of cancer. But what happens if the cancer comes back? None of us can predict that, can we? None of us knows what tomorrow may bring. Can this really be called freedom? Can this really be called freedom when you're a slave to your circumstances? You're happy when things are going well, but discouraged and broken when things go wrong. There's another way to help a poor person, a suffering person. And that is something that only God can do, and that's something that God does do. That's to give that person a peace and a joy, an inner peace, a contentment which does not depend on human circumstances. Contentment that cannot be shaken by any kind of human suffering. That is, isn't that a greater and a deeper kind of freedom and deliverance, than just delivering someone from their circumstances? To other people, it may not look as though that person's been delivered at all. They're still still poor and got two pennies to rub together. Remember, my dad. I've told this story before. My dad, who when he was younger, he was told this apocryphal story of, at Christmas, they used to have one Mars bar for, for six of them, they used to cut up into little pieces that was their Christmas tree but it's possible to be poor really poor and yet be content and be delivered from that poverty I want to explain to you how this works this, I've been pondering this all week and resting this I hope this is biblical and I hope this is helpful <coughs> And I believe this is how Jesus frees people in one, one way. This is multifaceted. there are many ways in which he frees people. This is one way. He delivers the oppressed and helps the poor. Jesus, he frees the sufferers from the stigma and shame of their affliction and gives them untold blessings. I believe that with all my heart. When a person, whoever they are, believes in the Lord Jesus, puts their trust in Him, hear's the gospel is saved they become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven a child of god and in that kingdom there is no distinction between rich and poor there's no social hierarchy there's no people of different social standing we're all just children of god so the poorest person the beggar homeless person or a slave or somebody who's oppressed somebody who's ravaged by sickness that person becomes a child of God with all the privileges and the blessings of heaven they're precious to God they're loved by him they're accepted through Jesus Christ and they have an equal standing in the kingdom with everyone else who's there rich or poor high or low there's no high or low in the kingdom doesn't that give the poor the sufferer great dignity the gospel Jesus Poverty and suffering are never easy to do. I don't want you to think this morning I'm making light of poverty and suffering. I'm I'm not saying it's easy. Some of you know very well what it's like to be poor, to suffer, to struggle. And it's not easy. But I do believe that the faith in Christ, the gospel, changes the status of the poor. It changes the the status and stigma attached to to the oppressed and the despised. And even if the world cannot see it, they know it to be true. You know... I've heard it said that people find it very difficult to go to food banks. It's, very, it's a stigma, isn't it? For a, I remember my, my homeless friend Jimmy, who I haven't seen for a long time, I earnestly pray for his salvation. Jimmy was a very proud man, and he found it very difficult to, fight, to accept help from people. And he didn't want to go to homeless day centres and receive free meals, because he, he said, I don't want to be a homeless person. I don't want to be lumped in with homeless people. Not that he didn't like homeless people, but he just felt, this is not who I am. But the gospel says you could be living out of a food bank. And there's no shame in that. You can lift up your head. And you can go in there with dignity. You're not defined by your status. I'm a poor person. I'm just a poor person. I'm just a homeless person. You, if you're a Christian, you are amongst the most privileged of all people. You you know the Lord Jesus. You're heir to all the promises of the kingdom. I know sometimes they can seem difficult to envisage because we can't see them always. But they are real. Your perspective has been changed about who you are. You are somebody infinitely precious in God's eyes. You are rich beyond measure when it comes to the really important things of life. What does that song say? Let the poor say, I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. This is how Jesus delivers people, this is how he saves people, one of the ways. Come to the kingdom, all those privileges and blessings are yours, you're a child of God, you're not an unemployed person, you're not a poor person, it doesn't matter if you're a rich person, it's a complete leveler, we're all children of God, we're all subjects of grace. Another way Jesus saves people is this, he frees sufferers from slavery to success and prosperity in this life. And this is a very important word for all of us because we look around us, don't we? We see people scrabbling around trying to, on this kind of treadmill, to try to achieve as much as possible in this life, to try to get a certain level of prosperity, to chase their dreams, to get as much fulfillment as possible for three score years and ten, and then you die. That's how the world lives. That's why the world is so hopeless and helpless and lost. People don't want to admit it. That's what it's basically about, isn't it, for people who don't know the Lord? I've got to achieve a certain standard of living in my life otherwise I can never be happy people either get very despondent because they don't actually achieve that or they they find they they reach that and they're still slaves to it because they're still scared of losing it again and going back to where they were before when you get to my age I I look at my friends on social media I've, I've followed them for the last 20 years People I went to university with and I see how people's lives pan out and what they, they chase after and the things they crave and, and you know, how, how things have developed in their lives. And sometimes you get the sense that people are just trying, trying, hustling, trying to make a way, trying to, to get something. They never know quite what they're looking for, never quite achieve it. But if you don't believe in, in the kingdom of heaven, if you don't believe in life after death and the kingdom, what else have you got? You know you're going to die. So isn't it understandable that you're going to try and get as much satisfaction as possible in this life? You've got no hope of anything else afterwards. But Jesus changes things because for the Christian, who believes in the kingdom. No matter how desperate and unsuccessful your life may be here, we know this is not our final destiny. We know that we're going to have a great reward in heaven. And everything this life has to offer will pale into insignificance when we see the Lord Jesus. And doesn't that change the perspective? Doesn't that free you from this, this treadmill of trying to have everything now in this life that this life can offer? Which is, to be honest, you no, know, it's enjoyable at the time, but it's pretty unsatisfactory, isn't it? You no. Know, you're you're going to have a big Chinese meal, and it's, it's tasty at the time and satisfying, but half an hour later you're hungry again. Things people chase after are like that as well. Dear friend, you do not need to have a perfect, ideal life here if you're a Christian to be content. Let me say this as well. The good news that Jesus brings, the the, the deliverance that Jesus brings as the Messiah, is this as well that this world is not all there is. This world is unjust. This world is messed up. This world is sinful. This world is full of tragedy and trauma and pain and suffering and futility and uselessness and all the rest of it. There are good things as well, but it's corrupted by sin, utterly lost. And if you're not a Christian, you've got no prospect whatsoever that anything's going to improve, have you? You hope for the best, but you don't know where this world's going. It's like an orb floating through space. You've got no idea where time and the universe are heading. It could all end up in a big, you know, big explosion, a nuclear war. Some comet could hit the earth, you just don't know, you've got no hope, you just live your life for today. We know as Christians, don't we, that this world has a destiny and a purpose. When the Lord Jesus comes, he will establish his kingdom in righteousness and justice. It talks about mishpat, didn't we, in the book of Isaiah, that beautiful word, which we can't really translate fully in English, which encapsulates justice, the reign of Christ The righting of wrongs. And that's something that Christians look forward to. When we get to the kingdom, dear friends, we will be delivered finally and comprehensively from all the sufferings of this life. Whatever might be blighting you and affecting you today, and you will enter, we will enter the bliss of the kingdom along with all the people of God. And I think this truth truth gives us great freedom and hope in this troubled world, doesn't it? Let me say this as well. Some of us, myself included, struggle sometimes with this kind of this, this discontentment about life. Wishing our lives could be better, bemoaning our lot, envying other people. wish I had a life like them. If only my life were like this, I could be happy. If only I could achieve this. There's always one, one more thing, isn't it? You, you do this, I get this degree, get my PhD, what's the next thing? Something else, something else, something else. As Christian people, if you are a Christian, there's no need to be angry or disappointed about the way our lives have worked out. You know, my life's a right failure, right mess. I I planned it all so differently when I was younger. Look how it's turned out. That's not the Christian way, is it? A few wry smiles. We don't need to be on this unsatisfying, unsatisfactory treadmill, do we? of trying to achieve certain life goals. It's good to have goals, but this is, not, this is not what we need to make us happy. We don't need to be disappointed and discouraged if we don't reach those goals, or fearful of losing everything if we do reach them. Now let me say this. in the early I'll give you an example from the Bible. In the, in the early church, there were many slaves in the Roman Empire, and there were many slaves in the church, many Christian slaves. There were thousands if not millions of slaves it was a fact of life the bible never condones slavery the new testament doesn't condone it the apostles seem to seem to accept it as a fact of life in the roman empire now i'm very grateful that men like wilberforce stood up and opposed slavery praise the lord for them and their ministry but in in the days of the apostles the early church what did the apostles do? They didn't encourage the slaves to revolt against their masters. They, Paul didn't, didn't spend his time, spend spent his days in Ephesus trying to fight against the system. What he does do is he talks to the slaves who are Christians and says, look at your circumstances in a new way, in a Christian way. What does Paul say? Were you a slave when you were called? Do not let it trouble you, says Paul. For he who was a slave when he was called is the Lord's freedman. 1 Corinthians verse 7. In other words, being a Christian completely changed a slave's perspective on his life. Rather than being distressed and bemoaning his life difficulties, his circumstances, the slave knew that he or she had a new identity in Christ. They had a great destiny awaiting for them. Their freedom would come, Ultimately. The moment a Christian, be, Christian slave became a Christian, the moment a slave became a Christian, and at that moment he became free. Free in Christ. Nothing had changed about his outward circumstances. He was still a slave. Didn't look like he was free, but he had been freed in his heart. He was the Lord's freedman. Let me say this as well. While Christians should reflect in the mercy and compassion of Christ... We should help to alleviate suffering wherever we find it. If we can do good to the poor, we should do good. That's very biblical. The Lord has a great concern for the poor. But we need to make sure we still preach the gospel of personal salvation in Christ. Some churches have lost that. Some churches have been seduced by this and have got so taken up with trying to um, pursue a political agenda and a humanitarian agenda. They've actually forgotten that the gospel, the heart of the gospel, is about faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the message people need to hear. I, th- I think, this. I think, friends, a misguided focus on political and social activism and humanitarian work can be a distraction for the church. But It can also lead to a very impoverished understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of true freedom. So hear me right, we, we should indeed help people and do good, especially in, in a democracy, we have a voice, we should use it. We should make sure it doesn't become our be-all and end-all, our sole purpose as Christians. Because it can lead to a very impoverished understanding of freedom in Christ. Let me explain what I mean. The social gospel, the gospel which has a very, very strong political emphasis and social emphasis, says this. The Lord Jesus Christ wants to free you from your circumstances. And we will focus our efforts into campaigning to achieve that politically and through humanitarian ends. There's also another type of gospel, false gospel, the prosperity gospel. We've all seen these preachers, haven't we, who promise you the earth. If you become a Christian, you'll be healthy, wealthy and wise. You'll be loaded, rolling in cash. People, friends, there are some outrageous things out there that people say, promises they make. Absolute baloney. The blessings Christ offers, spiritual blessings, primarily, and then future blessings in the kingdom. This idea that we we can have everything now, the fullness of it now, is mistaken. The prosperity gospel says, Christ wants to free you from your circumstances. All you need to do is, is claim your blessings so you can have your best life now. Why wait? Both these Gospels are false, the social Gospel and the prosperity Gospel. What does the biblical Gospel say? The Gospel of Jesus Christ says this, you may never ever be free of your difficult circumstances in this life. You may be, God may have mercy on you, he may heal you, he may deliver you from poverty, he may not. There's no guarantee, there's no promise. But, dear friends, you can indeed be free, despite your circumstances. And that's true freedom, isn't it? That's a key to a blessed life. You know, I may be suffering, I may be poor. I may always be poor, but I'm free in Christ. I don't have the stigma of it. I don't have this treadmill of trying to achieve something in my life. I'm free. I'm a free person. I'm looking forward to the kingdom. looking forward to seeing Jesus. I believe Jesus was doing that work in the hearts of people. That's why he didn't set all the, the poor people free. There were many who were still poor who heard him, but they were free. There's another way, a final way that Jesus changed people. And this perhaps is the most obvious to the Christian. Coming back to these verses in Isaiah. The Messianic ministry. Jesus fulfilled it far more deeply than anyone could have imagined. The Jews of his day failed to understand this because they were bound by this literal, physical, natural understanding of the Messiah and his kingdom. They had no clue, did they, about the spiritual deliverance that Jesus was was affecting in the hearts of people, culminating in his sacrificial death on the cross. Dear brothers and sisters, that cross of Jesus was the greatest act of deliverance. The Jews could not understand how that could deliver people because their minds were so focused on the natural and the physical, physical blessings and physical deliverance. They did not see that that man dying on the cross was delivering those who believe in him, saving his people. You might be sitting here this morning thinking, well, my life's pretty good and I've got plenty of money in the bank and I've got nice insurance policy and I've got a good pension and I've got good things laid up for many years and I'm pretty healthy. I go for a 10-kilometre run every day, like Mark does, do you? Your dad does, doesn't he? And um, I'm not (coughs) suffering any depression and I've got a great job and I've got a beautiful family. So what, what, what... What does Jesus have to say to me? Because I understand how he can help people who, who are poor and depressed and he can deliver them from their status and he can deliver them from their, give them a new perspective on their lives, but what, what can he offer me? Because I'm, I'm doing pretty well. And you'll meet people in Brighton and Hove and elsewhere, all over the world, in fact, who, who are like this, pretty self-satisfied, pretty comfortable. And yet, dear friends, these verses speak to them and to us just as much as they do to the poorest beggar. Who are these people? These people are sinners. People like you and me. Like all of us. We're all sinners. We've all broken God's law. We're all under his judgment. There's not a single person in the world that's not. We're all under the curse. We live in darkness. When I say we, I'm not talking about Christian, people, I'm talking about people in the world, humanity. We live in darkness, oppressed by sin, oppressed by its effects, because sin ruins lives. We're imprisoned, aren't we, by sinful desires, by guilt. We're spiritually blind. We don't know where we've come from. We can't see where we're going. This is the predicament that people face. You could be the richest person, the most powerful person. If you're not a Christian, this is true about you. People need desperately the saving ministry, the heart-changing ministry of Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus, blind eyes are open, aren't they? Isn't it a beautiful thing when you see somebody who's lost in sin, who's hard-hearted, you see a softening process, the Holy Spirit works upon the heart of a person. Somebody who was blind, who couldn't see, suddenly they start to see. They say, I'm saved, I know, it now I see. I was blind, but now I see. And that is a work of Jesus, divine work. You know, A great orator could stand here and talk till the cows come home, using the best kind of rhetoric known to man. And yet that would not save a single soul. unless the Holy Spirit of God was working, doing that ministry, opening the eyes of the blind, giving spiritual life, freeing people from sin. And praise God, that's what he's doing. That's what he does. And oh, that we would see it more often in this day. Oh, we'd see it in the people that we care about and love, who are bound by sin and lost in darkness. This should be the desire of our hearts. To see this work of Christ, this miracle, this messianic ministry of saving people. That's what Jesus was doing. Preaching the gospel. People didn't see it. People didn't understand it. The Jews didn't didn't think it was what the Messiah should be doing, but he was actually preaching and saving people spiritually, opening the eyes of the blind, giving them new life. As I said, the church should help the poor. We should have a deep compassion on the needy. But it doesn't end there. It's not the main purpose. What a travesty it would be if we fed the poor, spoke up for the oppressed, helped the sick, campaigned for social justice. All those things are good things to do. But if we do not point them to the one who can offer them true freedom, who can do a work that no man can do, no human agency can do, what a travesty it would be. What a, what a letdown for those people to not hear the message that transforms lives and hearts. Dear friends, there is a poverty of the human spirit, isn't there? Deep poverty of the human spirit. People are broken, people are impoverished by sin. Many people can feed the poor. I'm sure Oxfam and others do a very good job of it. But only the church of Jesus Christ can preach the gospel that saves people on a far deeper level. You know, you can, you can be fed, you can be delivered from poverty and oppression, but you can still go to hell and be judged and lost. The greatest need people have is reconciliation with God. Look at the great city of ours, Brighton Hove. Look at the, the need. This is like a sink, that you know, like a plug hole that draws all kinds of suffering and sin and lostness to itself, more than People are lost everywhere, but particularly in Brighton. It's very evident, isn't it? That's the sadness of people, the, the lostness, the poverty of the human spirit. There are many creative people and things like that going on, but at the same time there's an emptiness and a, and a lostness, people clutching at pleasure here, there and everywhere, trying to make, make sense of this life. And you, and you and me, dear friends, as Christian people, and as the small band, we, we happy few, we band of brothers and sisters. We are the ones who have the message that can save people and deliver people. The only message, nothing else will work. We are custodians of that gospel. As I said, Jesus performed that ministry in his life. And he, he, was, he was the Messiah, fulfilling that promise by going around delivering people from sin. And he is doing that work to this very day. And you and me, you and I have, have a, a role to play in the fulfilment of that, until he comes again, when all these promises are fully fulfilled in the kingdom. The role of the church of Jesus Christ, we're not to have a church-going habit. That's not what Christianity is about, is it? Coming to church, just going to a meeting, not engaging with it. We are here to preach healing and deliverance to the nations, starting where we are, the workplace, the family, in this city. That's why God has called us. To fulfil that ministry of Jesus. To preach good news to the poor. To those who are spiritually impoverished. To release the oppressed. Those who are oppressed by sin and its effects. To open the eyes of the blind by the preaching of the gospel. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. I'll come to that in a minute. You notice in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, says Jesus. The Jews of his day would have envisaged this as being an imminent restoration of the kingdom. All those promises in Isaiah literally fulfilled as, as in, then, there and then, at the time when they were living. Golden age. If you go back to Leviticus 25, you read about the year of Jubilee. Very important to the Israelites. And Isaiah alludes to this. This was a year, um, every 50, year, 50 years in Israel, there was to be in the law... A year where all slaves were freed and debts were cancelled, and all the property that had been lent to other people was returned to the ancestral families. It was a a time for righting wrongs, of wiping the slate clean. This is what the the year of Jubilee is the year of the Lord's favour, the acceptable year of the Lord that Jesus came to proclaim. When he refers to it, he's talking about the messianic age, the age when the gospel would be proclaimed. If you look at Isaiah 61, there's, let's turn to it quickly. It is important. It says this. I can find it. So you can read the whole chapter later at your leisure, but it says that, and Isaiah, the prophet says this. Verse two. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, and the day of vengeance of our God. Have you noticed that Jesus doesn't mention the vengeance of God? Now, I've heard people say that's because Jesus didn't believe in the vengeance of God, but that's far from the truth. Jesus spoke more about judgment than any man. The reason Jesus doesn't mention it, I think, in Luke, in his sermon in Nazareth, is because he has come to usher in the day of grace, when the gospel would be preached and freely offered to sinners, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Come and be cleansed of your sin. Come and be cleansed of your guilt. But there will come a day when the day of vengeance comes. And that will come at the end when the messianic age, the door shuts, there will be no more chances to hear and respond to the gospel. The Lord Jesus will come and judge the earth. We live in that glorious period where the gospel has been offered to people. The, the, the year of the Lord's favour. The Lord is showing favour to you. He'll cancel your debt of sin if you believe. Wipe you clean. Wash you. Cleanse you. Restore you. Anyone who believes in Jesus and His atoning work on the cross receives the favour of the Lord. So hope you see this morning that Jesus did indeed fulfil those prophecies. Not in the way they expected, but in a much more glorious way. And I hope that was uh, not too confusing. But the question for you today is do you believe this? Are you a free person? Have you been made free in Christ in all those ways I described? Have you been washed clean? Have your eyes been opened to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Have you been delivered from the oppression of sin? There's no, there's no grey areas. You, you either have or you haven't. It's black and white. If you haven't, let me urge you with great love and sincerity, please do this. Come to the Lord. Let him perform his ministry on you, that ministry of deliverance and healing and blessing. And you will be free. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we thank you for um, the mission of our Lord Jesus to set the captives free to preach good news to the poor open the eyes of the blind thank you that he did that physically thank you that he does that spiritually thank you Lord for the gospel do pray Lord if there be anyone here today who has not yet experienced that work of Jesus Christ they might. this might be the day of cleansing the day of restoration thank you Lord that although this life is difficult and hard we know, Lord, that we have a great destiny as Christians, and that one day all these promises in Isaiah will find their, their final fulfillment and it will be glorious. But In the meantime, we, we long with anticipation for that day. And help us to be about your business in pointing people to this Jesus, the only one who can cleanse people and save people. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Amen. Amen.